Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, the 9th of February, 2012, and our special guest is Alan Blankstein. Alan, thanks so much for being here. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So there are times when this interview series uh, feels like it pays me dividends back in gold, and tonight is one of those nights. The serendipity here uh, is hard to believe. Um, the um, This book is now in the top of my must-reads list, the very top, um, and I'm really hopeful that we'll uh, be able to convince you of that uh, in this recording or if you're here live. Uh, there's so much of the material in this book that repeats things that we've talked about in the interview series that I'm actually feeling a little sheepish about some of the things that I'm going to bring up. So if it feels like we're hitting familiar territory, that's good. Repetition will be good for us. The Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project, providing places for educators to talk to each other, and Blackboard Collaborate, the user community I run for Blackboard Collaborate at wecollaborate.com. Coming up at the Q&ISTE shows, the terrific crowdsourced activities. This is the fifth year. It's the fifth year of Classroom 2.0, and it's the fifth year of our ISTE affiliation. Uh, EduBloggerCon, the all-day unconference on Saturday, has been renamed. It's now Social EdCon. The Bloggers Cafe will be there. We're going to do an Ed Incubator program. We've got live streaming. If you've never presented before, you can present. Not only can you present at the conference, by signing up, but you'll also be able to be streamed out live. This is so much fun, and Q is letting us do the same kind of extensive program at the Q Conference in Palm Springs. So if you're going to either of those conferences, please look up Q Unplugged or ISTE Unplugged. We will have a birthday cake at both, I think. So for the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0, we're doing a couple of fun things, one of which is the Ed Incubator program. PBS NewsHour is our first project helping them find a group of educators to give them feedback on their programs. Just go to classroom20.com, click on Ed Incubator, and join up. Uh, it's a terrific group. They're, they're, they're dying to get some good feedback from teachers. Uh, we're also going to produce Classroom 2.0, the book. It will be a treasury of best practices of using web tools in the classroom, and you're going to write it. So every submission will get posted to the web. We're so excited about this. Some select number will actually be placed in a printed book, um, but uh, do go to classroom20.com and click on the book to find out more. And we've got some great virtual conferences coming up. Of course, all of these are free, uh, and they're worldwide. We're going to do a Classroom 2.0 celebration. We do have a date for the Gaming and Education Conference. That's going to be April 26th. The alternate education conference will be May 10th through the 12th. That's homeschooling, unschooling, unplugged, everything. Library, the future of libraries will be October 3rd to 5th, and the Global Education Conference November 12th to 16th. Coming up on the show uh, next week, we talk to Khalid Smith, who's the lead at Startup Weekend EDU. A little bit of controversy there uh, because they've now partnered with Pearson, but it will be very fun to talk to him, and we'll we'll be gentle. Uh, Jane Hart's going to talk to us about social learning. Uh, Ruth Sewelli is actually going to postpone, but Dennis Litke is a new addition to this list. He's coming on Friday, February 24th. Um, he's uh, been scheduled before and missed, but this time we're sure he's coming. David Weinberger is going to talk about his book, Too Big to Know. Uh, you've seen most of this list before. I'm actually going to go down to April 5th because um, Alan's going to know this, I think. Joseph Grenny, one of the co-authors of Crucial Conversations, um, was going to talk about vital behaviors and sources of influence. It should be a lot of fun. That will probably come up tonight as we 
talk, and I think everything we do, there are a couple of new ones there, but I think they've all been announced. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded. There are over 250 of them now. I'm kind of proud of that. I think we've really done a great job of bringing together a real diverse group of voices, um, many of whom are going to be mentioned tonight. So that's a lot of fun. They're all available at futureofeducation.com in full Blackboard Collaborate or in MP3 form. So this is our chance to let you indicate where you're participating from if you're in the live show. Look for the icons to the left of the map. You're looking for the star. It's the second one down. Double click on that and then click on the map. And you can let us know the time and the temperature. So it looks like Australia, somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Is that Guam? Oh, that's Thomas, yes. Welcome, Thomas. <laughs> Angela, nice to have you with us. Wherever you're participating from or if you're listening to the recording, we sure do appreciate your taking the time to do so. You'll be well rewarded tonight. So, Alan, uh, Peter Block, Deming, Sengi, Bandura, Linda Darling-Hayman, Finland, Tony Wagner, the Dufours, Positive Deviants and Vital Behaviors. I've been doing this show for five years now, and um, I'm intrigued at how many connections you and I have on this topic, and yet we've never connected before. And I'm wondering if that tells us something about the educational technology world and a need that there might be to bridge with uh, more traditional education reform ideas. I'm sorry, was that a question? Well, yeah, the question is, is does it tell us anything? That there is uh, a need for more technology to connect us? <laughs> I think the, the interesting piece for me was to realize that there have been discussions going on that, were, that I was completely unaware of and that they're incredibly related to the kinds of things that we've been talking about, but there hasn't been a good bridging of the ed tech world with those conversations. Well, you know, even the tech world itself isn't one world. It's splintered, and there are many, many technologies. The one that I'm using right now is new to me. And that isn't to say that I'm a guru of tech. I'm not. In fact, I'd probably be better answering other types of questions than those focused only on tech. But um, I think that we're not in a uh, monolithic, homogeneous situation. It, uh, it seems to me that there's... Uh, a wide variety of uh, technologies out there, and except for a few that have risen to the top, like Facebook um, and Google, um, it's questionable as to whether there is one world or one technology that we can all look to to connect us. 
Well, this will be really fun, and I'm glad we're making this connection. I'm going to tell a short story. I promise to do less talking for the rest of the interview. But there were two things that have happened to me in the last month that really have led to my appreciation of uh, the answers in the room. The first was I went to a conference at Stanford around uh, the, uh, the Finnish education system and left the conference with a uh, having really sort of drilled down to a deeper understanding of what I think was taking place in Finland. I don't think it was the test score. I don't think it was the practices. I don't think it was even the narrative of equity. I left uh, somewhat convinced that it was the fact that there was a consensus narrative that allowed all of the stakeholders in Finland to come together and bring energy to that program. So then I went to um, a, a conference in uh, Texas for the Horizon Report. Uh, where they do this process, this really brilliant process of sort of identifying technologies that they think are going to make a difference in education. And we got to the end of the two days, and I stood up and I said, they were asking for action items, and I said, I'm intrigued at the degree to which we want to push down the conclusions, but I'm convinced what we need to be doing is pushing down the process. So am I right in feeling as though I've directly connected with your material? Yes, Steve, absolutely. In fact, I just had that same conversation with the, uh, two different superintendents today. It is, it is about the process, and uh, we're, we're somewhat infatuated with the product, at least here in the States. So discovered Roland Barth, whom I didn't know before, and I had been reading his material and, and sort of stunned at this sort of um, what he describes as sort of list making, this idea that we will look at a set of practices, determine that the outcome is good, and so try and kind of push that list or the set of practices to others to to follow through on. Um, and, and you quote, uh, and I think the book is titled after a quote by Peter Block that talks about uh, people will be accountable to those things or committed to those things that they have a hand in creating. Um, why is it we have trouble doing that? That's a great question, Steve. Um, it, it, I guess it depends on who we are, um, and in, in the case of the United States and in many other Western countries, um, you know, there, there's a heavy policy hand involved in uh, education, and so policy is driven by, uh, in this country, uh, to a great extent, money, and unfortunately, uh, moneyed interests really could care less as to whether um, or not there is a uh, um, a buy-in, um, and I, I I would even like to go beyond the word buy-in because that that implies that I've sold you something. So it's really a, a matter of an intrinsic desire to address a particular item um, on the part of practitioners, and practitioners who have children right in front of them are inherently, um, along with parents natural allies to wanting to inherently do what's good for those same kids. And so um, in, you mentioned Finland, um, but in here, in this country, unlike in Finland, trust of practitioners is not very high. Um, and that conspires along with moneyed interest to go and push an agenda that may not have anything to do with children. You know, there's a line in the book that I uh, sort of sat up and took notice uh, 
physically because you talked about the fact that there aren't financial incentives around this kind of local uh, community-based process and so that they're not these are not the solutions that are going to get pushed by vendors uh, has anybody argued back with you or is there pretty much an understanding that that's the case you know, I, I just had an exchange with Pedro Noguera, a friend of mine, um, online about his his decision to resign from the SUNY Board of Trustees and his uh, proclamation as to why he did it. And I asked him what his feedback has been like so far because he was somewhat critical of the board he was on um, and the direction they'd taken. And he said um, he's mainly gotten good feedback and he supposes those who disagree with him haven't contacted him. So perhaps that's the case for me as well. Interesting. Okay, um, I really also was kind of um, uh, intrigued by the connection with Tony Wagner because Tony's been on the show and he talked about how he would do these community uh, vision building experiences around education and how the communities would often come up with almost identical goals and desires but they then had skin in the game. They were they were a part of the process of building them. And we've talked at length on the show about um, through the 21st century skills model and how the committees that create those lists probably have a great experience, but pushing that list down is not like pushing down the process. Um, if Can we take this a little bit further? Uh, is there a parallel with, if we, if we think about administrators and teachers going through this process of building a vision. Um, sh I'm looking for two potential parallels. One would be with the students and one would be with the parents. If we start with the students, should that same kind of process be taking place in classrooms? I think it's a great idea. Um, and you know, the, the, the issue again of trust comes up. So here's an interesting piece of information. Um, when I started the group that's now called Solution Tree, um, I had um, published some of the main works at that point by um, of the group that created uh, Discipline with Dignity. And uh, what, what we found out was that, you know, the, the uh, advice that students be able to create their own um, rules for the classroom um, led to a, an exchange with the teacher in which the students became far more severe in their, in their um, declaration as to what the rules should be and what the punishments should be for breaking them. Like, you know, if, 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 if he passes a piece of paper, we should break his arm. <laughs> so it's a little bit over, over the top for some kids. But the point is that, that the kids were, were not easy on themselves. Um, as we thought that they might be, and um, the same the same is true, um, I would think of their uh, desire for their own success. Because if you look at the work of Ed Trust and Katie Haycock's work, um, you know what what they found uh, in their research with directly with children was that the the students don't ask to be babied and ask to be uh, let out of hard uh, rigorous academics. What they ask for is that the uh, educators uh, believe in them, show them how to do it, um, come prepared, and um, uh, make the, the coursework relevant, but not let them off the hook. So the, the, the concerns about trust are kind of interesting. Um, the, the second part is 
will the students have the wherewithal, you know, intellectually to set their own curriculum? And to that end, I would say that would take an awful lot of work to get them to that point. But nonetheless, they would, they would um, move in that direction as to the specifics of what the curriculum would be. That's another question. I don't know whether or not they have that background to create their own curriculum, and I wouldn't advise it right off the top. But I would say that the more that the students are involved with defining what it is that is relevant and what they're going to need in life, the more likely they are to actually start to um, uh, participate more rigorously in class. It reminded me a lot of the, that idea. Reminded me a lot of the classroom meeting material that I remember reading, you know, many years ago. So, is there a parallel also with parent involvement? Yeah, there is. Uh, uh, again, similar to the students, if there's anybody who wants their children to succeed, it's going to be their parents. I know there's a bad rap on parents in some parts, but that's, I think, just a misplaced um, diagnosis of some problems that are being experienced. So because parents aren't uh, uh, showing up for all the PTA meetings doesn't mean that they don't care, for example. It can mean a lot of other things. Um, so I, I hold that parents are probably the most staunch advocates of their own children and their own children's well-being and success in life. Now, um, that being said, if parents have the background and the understanding, for example, of what Tony Wagner talks about in terms of what's needed globally, then they're going to be the biggest advocates for, in fact, having a curriculum that uh, is globally competitive. So I'm going to go even one step further. I've loved your answer so far. Um, but uh, uh, we're, we're looking at this at a very local level. Is there a parallel then even at a higher level with the larger education reform movement? And, and how would you translate these concepts into um, ideas around policy? Well, in terms of content, you know, Common Core in America has already been created for two subject areas. In other parts of the world, there are equivalents. Uh, Finland has a common understanding of what every student needs to know coming out of the, uh, the, the uh, education uh, K-12 equivalent. And the same thing goes in other countries. But in terms of the process and what can policy do to, to better advocate for the process? I, you know, I've been thinking about that same question. And I, and I think that instead of race to the top in our country and other such either competitive or policy-driven initiatives in which the focus is generally on the outcome, um, show us exactly how you, you know, what, what you're going to do and, <clears throat> and tell us that you're going to do everything we told you we want you to do which is really what's going on in Race to the Top um, grants right now in America. Um, instead of that, the, the better approach would be to say, what's the process that you're going to use that's going to have these kind of criteria embedded in it? So one of the criteria is what you're getting to now, that the stakeholders would have skin in the game. They would actually want the outcome that they're um, working on and that they would actually create what that outcome is to some extent. So I think maybe if, poli if policy, like everything else that we're involved in, including practice, were to shift from product to process, then we'd probably have 
something that really was scalable instead of something that only works in one particular spot. So I've gone through the same thought process, and I'm living in Utah this year. Um, so I'm calling it a sabbatical, but it's um, been really interesting to be here because in Utah they have a, a, a real push for immersive language schools. And intriguingly, the narrative of immersive language schools seems to really bring everybody together. The students, the parents, the teachers, the administrators, and the legislators all seem to, to kind of agree. And I've wondered about those kinds of narratives that don't directly address uh, teaching practices, but obviously have an impact when you teach a language that's, a, that's high interactivity, highly participative. I've wondered if some of those programs that kind of come at it from the side don't end up being a good place to put energy uh, while the larger dialogue of moving to process is a little bit harder for people to swallow. Yeah, I think that you're, you put your finger on something interesting, Steve. <clears throat> I, I spoke to one of the top educational officials, uh, education officials who disperses millions and millions of dollars every year in grants. Um, he's, he's very bright, very uh, extraordinary researcher. And, he, and, I, and I asked him about what are the grants going to be for. And then I asked him what he thinks works. And the answer was two different things. He said that he thought that you know um, uh, programs are going to get the money, and that processes would actually be portable, and that programs were not. So a program could work in one setting, in one context, with uh, you know a certain amount of uh, assistance from the outside provider, for example, and maybe not without the, the assistance later. So in other words, the program has a shelf life that's pretty short. Whereas he felt that processes were portable and that they could work in multiple environments and, and principles too were portable. Um, so, you know, failure is not an option. Um, the first book that I wrote, um, the, the subtitle is six, uh, the, uh, um, six Principles That Guide Student Achievement in High Performing Schools. And so these six principles would, from his vantage point, be portable to various contexts, but it's not what will get most of the funding. And so I, I asked him why. And incidentally, during this part of the interview, he, he asked that I shut the tape. Um, so it, that's a little telling. But he, he, he said that um, basically he didn't think that people could get their hands around it. They couldn't wrap their minds around it. It's just like what you've said now. It's, uh, it's a little bit too out there um, for, for many. And unfortunately, therefore, they go for the more canned, easily understood program. Yeah, we've talked about on the show the role of narratives and, and how much they shape kind of uh, what, uh, what we do and the need to have agreement. And, and the fact that uh, the equity narrative in Finland is not one that would probably play very well here. We don't do equity well in the United States. We have a belief in bootstrap or opportunity, but we don't necessarily have a belief in equity. In fact, it, that could be a negative if you think of it as socialist or communist. Um, but I've wondered also about the narrative of uh, individual strengths. It feels like that's another kind of narrative that people gather around that then involves uh, shifting practices and processes. Um, individual strengths um, involving shifting practices and pro pro processes. You, you lost me a little bit there. I'm sorry, Steve. Help me out. 
Well, that's okay. Um, I, we've, we've interviewed Jennifer Fox, who started a school and wrote a book on um, your child's strength. It's sort of the strength finders movement. It's the look at individual unique talents. It feels to me as though parents believe their children to be unique and valuable. Um, it's a, a sort of a larger narrative that we've uh, kind of uncovered in um, sort of mass customization and this idea that you can buy sort of exactly what you need. And I've wondered if that narrative of individual individualization of learning um, is another case where it brings it's a narrative that people have consensus on, but also brings a change in the processes that take place in a school, or the opportunity to rethink process. Well, the idea that we're all individuals and there needs to be differentiated, you know, instruction and so forth, I think is is on target, but not dichotomous with the idea that we do have some collective desires and uh, potential collective vision. Um, and uh, and there are a lot of commonalities uh, between us that you know we're 99% um, the same biologically speaking. So both are true. They they coexist, and um, I think both can be catered to. Obviously, without common mission, vision, values, and goals, for example, which is the first principle in in the book I mentioned earlier, failure is not an option. Um, it's it's hard to run an organization. If everybody has different mission, vision, values, and goals, then you're all running in different directions. And similarly, um, you know, uh, within the classroom, there has to be some common basis for where the classroom is going. Now, as to how all the students learn and how uh, who gets there first and so on and so forth, that's, that's you know, something that needs to be tended to on a different level. Um, but the other part of that is that it doesn't have to be tended to as individual isolated students. It can be tended to um, on an individual level just as well in community. In other words, one learning style and another learning style um, can be accommodated within a cooperative learning setting. And in fact, it's very much uh, uh, bolstered in most cases when you can create a cooperative learning situation. Let's say that you want to um, uh, determine, you know, the, uh, uh, the the basis for Pythagorean theorem, and you start out with the students in the classroom, and you ask them to start, you know, working on um, that basis in in smaller groups. Now, different students are going to have different levels of uh, connection to that and aptitude to, you know, uh, respond to the question at hand. But they're all going to learn from one another within those groups. And ultimately, I think from our standpoint as a society and as a school and as a teacher, that's what we want. We want them to learn from one another. We want them all to succeed. I think the other part of what you're talking about is, is a more pernicious aspect of the challenge, and that is that there is in our society also a desire that a whole lot of people fail and that there be a winner. And that is problematic for education. Um, when that starts to become an operating principle for a school or for a system or for a school system, um, then, then you've got a new challenge. And, um, and that's one that I think we need to address um, as we're talking through what is the meaning of school, what's the purpose of learning, and so forth. Yeah, I actually had this conversation with Linda Darling-Hammond, um, whom I know you are well familiar with, but about how 
our narrative is um, competing interests. Our economic, political, uh, and legal systems are based on this idea of competing interests, and it's um, very different than uh, a narrative around equity. So uh, um, I am. I, I want to quickly get. I mean, there's more than we were going to have time to do here, but I wanted to get to a Deming. Um, because Bloch's quote was basically the wisdom to solve the problem is in the room. And um, I've loved Deming for a couple of decades now and again was delighted to see such a focus on him. My sort of simple take on Deming would be that, that his response was don't blame the worker. Look at the system and teach the worker about the system and how the worker can help improve the system. Uh, is that a fair description of your of what you learned from Deming? It certainly is a big part of what I learned from him. But tell, tell me what I missed. Well, so he had a, he had a uh, 14 points that he thought were, um, you know, that were the Deming principles. And so, for example, point number eight was drive out fear. Um, so those things um, in some ways supported what you just said, um, but they also supported other parts of the system. So, you know, another one was to basically have a common, you know, vision uh, and mission of, the, of, of what you're trying to do, a common aim. Um, another one, incidentally, was um, not to use numeric goals. Uh, and, uh, and I think he named it arbitrary numeric goals. So those things support what you said, and they're interactive with it, and they also, in some cases, have a life of their own beyond it. Um, but yes, that's a huge point, is that this is a system that everyone is working on, and if you're a leader within the system, your job is to understand a few things. One is variation, and the fact that there are some people who are going to do um, you know, uh, better than others. That's just what happens when you have any number of people, any number of items. There's natural variation, and that's called common cause, and then there's exceptional causes for the variation. Now, the common cause variation is within a given range, and your job as leader is basically to take that common cause of variation and, and live with it, try to narrow it wherever possible, but move the whole system towards the ultimate goal. So don't don't focus too much on changing common cause of variation. Just move the whole system towards excellence. The uh, the 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 uh, special cause of variation is uh, the outliers at the very high end or the low end of that variation. And your job as leader then is to find out why they're outliers. For the bottom end, for the ones who are doing outside of the norm, what can you do to get them back into the system? For the top end, what can you do to make that? extraordinary performance the norm for the rest of the system? How can you get everybody else up to that um, exceptional cause of variation? And you have to ask what it is that made that happen and find out the method that was used and see if that method could be normalized to the whole system. So you're going to love the fact that um, that I, did, I owned a small computer company and did this as um, we had an outsourced project that we worked on for Hewlett Packard. We had a team of employees inside one of their facilities uh, running a process. And we were, we were deeply into Deming at the time. We had an hour each week in which they would read a book together and talk about it, and then an hour for so talking about process improvement. 
And then we had a, a measurement system which was entirely transparent and we gave the group incentive to work together to figure out why those top performers were doing well and how to transfer that knowledge and, and all the like. Now the sort of the intriguing end of that story was that Hewlett Packard came to us and said, you can no longer hold those meetings because it looks like your team is not working to the rest of the employees in the building. Do you see a similar kind of responses in the education world to this kind of Deming-like um, activity? You, you know, Steve, I think I think that what happens is that what first of all, what Deming did, and I worked with him for a while. I mean, I was just a kid, but I was really excited and eager, and he took me under his wing, and and I and he let me bring him into the educational arena. So we did that, and then we brought Peter Senge to join him, and then the rest was the launch of the PLC movement from there. So um, he uh, he found that even in corporations, uh, he wasn't well understood. So the first challenge is to you know actually be understood. Um, the second one is uh, relative to that is to um, be accepted, and if you're not understood, then usually all sorts of um, uh, rumors start to abound about what you're saying and what you're doing and why you're doing it and you know there's a certain amount of paranoia in human nature um, and then you know if you are understood then you know there's another whole layer of things to do like uh, actually implement what is being you know understood uh, um, do it in a way that's collaborative and so on and so forth so I think that it's very challenging to do something that's particularly innovative and new, which, which is what he brought to the table, and um, that um, all kinds of things do occur uh, in any event to make it hard for such a, a new idea to enter an older culture. Um, and that included not only schools, so I would say yes to your question about schools, but yes to your question about corporations too, where Deming had focused most of his life and where he felt he hadn't uh, achieved much. Yeah, I'm not sure if you called it out specifically in the book, but it did feel like there was a parallel of the made in America but used widely elsewhere, uh, Deming, positive deviance, uh, research on learning. Did, did, is that kind of a theme for you? Yes, yeah, sadly it is. Sadly it is. And uh, um, you know, some of the people I interviewed from abroad agreed that um, we we do some of the best R and D. Uh, in this country uh, of anywhere in the world, but that we're not even using our own R&D. Yeah, that story actually came out quite a bit at Stanford in this conference with the Finnish people. They were very good, they were very quick to give credit to the research done in the United States for the practices that they were following. Um, okay, so tell us a little bit about what positive deviance is. So briefly, and if you want more, I could tell you the story behind it that parallels our story, ours being the Hope Foundation and the work that we've done around this concept without even knowing that the concept existed. We just developed it um, out of the Deming work. But, um, but the uh, idea is that in any situation, there's an outlier that's doing better than everybody else, even with the same resources. So, for example, if you go to um, a situation that's struck by malnutrition, as was the case in Vietnam um, and that I described in the book, um, there are still going to be some people who 
are doing far better and perhaps aren't even malnourished. And so the idea of positive deviance is that um, there is a positive deviant that you can learn from and uh, use to, um, uh, it's kind of like what I was saying about the outlier with Deming. You can use to kind of leverage to bring the whole system up towards that same deviation. I went to a training uh, a couple of months ago that I've talked about on the show at a company called Vital Smarts. We have a daughter doing a humanitarian program and they were helping to train the, the humanitarian workers. And, and this is the best sellers, um, the Change Anything and um, Crucial Conversations and they talk a lot about um, positive deviance and vital behaviors. I left that training feeling a little bit uncomfortable because it felt as though the idea was to identify the positive deviance and then take an action um, uh, that was not necessarily transparent or community driven. What I loved about your description of the book was this requirement that I think I read that the community and the people actually have to find the solutions themselves uh, once you help them identify the positive deviance or need to help I also identify the positive deviance. Yes, that's right. So um, because the case in Vietnam is so clear-cut and I can draw a circle around it, let me, let me uh, use that and then I'll try to translate it into the work that we do. So in, in Vietnam what happened was that uh, Save the Children was brought in to address decades-old malnourishment among uh, children uh, and, and their families. And when they got there, since they were a U.S. Uh, um, nonprofit, uh, um, the government basically said, we, give, we gave you a six-month visa, but that's all we can give you. Uh, there is antipathy towards American organizations, so you'll have to prove efficacy in six months in this decades-long problem. So they, w they drew from the positive deviance. Jerry Sternin uh, and his team basically um, um, found in talking with the locals that there were some outliers that weren't starving, and uh, within a short time frame, they found out what those outliers were doing. And so in order to do that, they had to get the people um, who were the locals and who were being trained as researchers in this project to stop looking at what they already knew and saying, well, we already do that. Well, we already know that. And start looking for what they didn't know and what they didn't expect, which is kind of like what we do in our in our field when we do this. It's like more like a treasure hunt than a witch hunt. And so when they um, uh, found what they were doing, it, it didn't take long. It took a couple of months, so they still had four months left. So in other words, the easy part was finding the the positive deviance. In this particular case, they had used. Um, um, small shrimp that they found in the rice paddies and they fed it to their kids. They fed their kids five times a day as opposed to two times a day like all the others. They fed them even when they had diarrhea. They washed their hands regularly and so forth. So there were a few vital behaviors. But the team that found all of these um, vital behaviors was also um, part of the locals whose children were starving. So they had a lot of skin in the game. They all wanted to succeed. And so then the hard part for the next four months was how do you get everybody else to do it? And the answer was to help them to have the same discoveries that you had. Not to give them the answers, but to help them have the same discoveries. So when we do our work to scale a positive deviance within a district, 
and we bring all the school-based teams together um, for a day of, you know, quote-unquote training. Instead, it's really them talking and them learning from, you know, uh, one another and them having new ways to converse, which we do give them. We give them tools to talk about things that uh, lead to different outcomes. At the end of that day, they have to do a re-entry plan because if they come back with the answer, they're sunk. What they need to come back with is a process that they reiterate using the same tools that we use and the same tools that they've been using that whole day. So they have to reiterate that same process in their own schools in order to get to the conclusions that everyone else will then buy into. And essentially what I hear you saying is in every school, in every district, there are things that are being done well. And if we can focus on those in a positive way and use those as building blocks for within a process of identifying them, that people will want to come to to understanding them and then building success around them. Sounds a lot to me like appreciative inquiry. Boy, now you're bringing me back to my childhood, Steve. Um, yeah, so I think appreciative inquiry is part of it. Um, the, uh, the, the augmentation might be relative to uh, some other fundamental principles that go into this process. As you said earlier, one is that you have to make sure that there is skin in the game, meaning, do I really want to do this? And in, in our current context, we have so much thrust upon us that we're told to do that a lot of times we just have to create the space for people to get beyond that and identify what they want to do. And it's surprising how there is overlap. And it's also surprising that when there isn't, sometimes, just like with the example I gave about children being tougher on themselves when it comes to developing disciplinary rules, sometimes and often what happens is that the practitioners actually want to do more and better than what minimum standards are requiring of them. So I'm wondering if this is a meta question or if it's just, um, if I'm asking a question that can't be answered, but uh, is there a positive deviance, an identifiable positive deviant set of behaviors at an administrative or district level where you see this kind of a process iteration um, that can be identified uh, at, at the highest levels where you, where you would say, okay, this is a vital behavior we can really work on to help create larger change, sort of a larger domino effect? Yeah, another great question, Steve. So let me give you an example of that in, in action. So we're in the Mansfield Public Schools. We've been there for a couple of years, and, and we've just kind of completed the work. That's in Texas. Um, 40 schools, and uh, in fact, right now we're in Fort Wayne too, and uh, we started with six. Um, and um, as as the beta test proceeded, they decided to go with all 53. In in both cases, but I'll turn to Mansfield. Um, what what happens is that there's an infrastructure over the course of a couple of years. They develop this uh, tight infrastructure for disseminating the information, plus a culture that wants to learn um, aggressively and actively. So in one of the schools, it's the Worley Middle School in uh, Mansfield, they had had discipline uh, issues that led to 2,000 incidents of in and out of school suspensions per year. Um, in, the, in, in the first year of, of finding uh, vital behaviors, 
um, and spreading them. They had cut that to a thousand and in the second year to a hundred. So here's how it worked. First of all, they were all part of our Courageous Leadership Academy, so they were all um, learning about these processes we're now discussing. Um, secondly, um, in that process, they also became very comfortable with learning walks, and they had defined their own desired outcomes of a learning walk. So the teachers and the leadership teams developed rubrics that they wanted to use in their own learning walks. Um, and uh, processes for giving feedback that were not uh, problematic for the school culture and the trust. In fact, they uh, augmented the school culture and the trust. So they had a means to give feedback after these learning walks. So when, when they uh, decided themselves that they wanted to hone in on the issue of uh, discipline, um, they went, uh, certain teams went to see those teachers who were succeeding with the same students everyone else was sending to the principal's office. They found what they were doing, a few vital behavior issues, like instead of calling a kid out from across the room, they'd come up to them closely and say, Johnny, I see you're, you're, you're playing with uh, your paper clips and uh, rubber bands, and it seems like maybe something's problematic. Do, do you understand the lesson? Is this a problem? And often it was the problem, that they had a problem with the lesson. They didn't understand it. So the teacher would tend to that. And there were other behaviors, too. But once they got these behaviors and they found out what led to excellence, they could quickly disseminate it because they had already put the wheels under the car, so to speak, and they had already had an infrastructure and a culture that supported spreading positive deviance. And that's how they went from 2,000 incidents to 100 incidents within two years. I, I love that story in the book, and I actually thought of several places in my own life where I could uh, use that example. Um, is it too simple? to say that leaders who think about um, iterating process are, are more likely to have this kind of an environment in their uh, larger uh, institutions? Yeah, it's hard to say um, because there are other elements that come into play. Um, and incidentally, you know, this whole district has changed its construct. So that story that I share with you was quickly spread to the rest of the district. They have a means by which to communicate that's highly effective for them, and it goes beyond the information. The means of communication goes into the relationships, the culture, the connection that people feel to one another, the trust that they've developed. You know, trust is, a, is like a uh, uh, conduit, um, you know, of, of electricity. You know, if you, if you have certain conduits to, to move electricity forward like wood, it doesn't go very far. But if you have another conduit, you know, um, like trust in this case, it, the, 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 or, you know, in another case, a metal conductor, um, it moves really well. And so trust is like, you know, one of these great conduits. Um, so I think back to your question, you know, the leader understanding the process and having that kind of mindset may not be all that's needed to create these great conduits like trust within an organization. Trust is certainly a word you hear a lot in the descriptions of Finland. Okay, so we're going to move to the Q&A portion of the show. Uh, the chat has uh, gone by much too fast for me to keep track of it. But if you have a question for Alan, feel free to post it in the chat. 
and uh, I'll um, feel free to post it again in the chat. Or you can raise your hand. Uh, if you're a brave soul, I'm going to encourage you to do this. It's the third icon over in the participant window. If you raise your hand, I'll give you the microphone. Um, but if you have a question for Alan, this is the time to start thinking about it, and feel free to post it while we're waiting. Um, would you tell us a little bit about the Hope Foundation? So I started the Hope Foundation in 1989. I had already started what's now called Solution Tree in 87 and was running the two together. Um, and it originally convened uh, top-level national leaders from across disciplines, business, education, and government. And that's why we brought Deming into the uh, educational circle, because his message was one of the most powerful that we were able to identify at the time and across disciplines, although it wasn't well known in education. And so we did these policy level forums. And after I spun off the uh, other company, which is a for-profit, um, I really wanted to just focus on how can we change the world and let go of the money-making aspect, which may or may not be wise. But in any event, I was a little schizophrenic. I wanted to focus on just, just the mission. And so um, the work started to get drilled down. Now we've talked about it, we've disseminated information about it, let's do it. And that's what we've spent the last uh, more than a decade doing. And so we basically, while we do have books and DVDs and so forth, we also really get in there into the trenches and start to do two things. One is to scale excellence across an entire district or region, or in the case of South Africa where my honorary chair Archbishop Tutu is, we did it in a province. Um, and the second thing is turn around low-performing schools. So Julie asks, what have you found to be the most effective way for teachers to engage parents in their students' learning? I know they care, but need their involvement in the child's lives. Well, I think parents really want to be involved, and I, I guess it's just a matter of finding out what the obstacles to, to doing so are, and it, it, it's hard for me to determine from here. Again, I could talk about products and say, well, this school does that, and that school does the other thing, um, you know, and, and, and there are a lot of them that are exciting, like they meet, you know, parents in McDonald's because they know that they, they tend to go there or they meet them in church or whatever. But I think that the process part of my answer would be ask them. Okay, so if you have a question for Alan, please feel free to type it in the chat, or you can raise your hand. That's the third icon over. Um, as we watch a lot of the reform dialogue conversations taking place now in the United States, um, uh, I feel like a lot of it's sort of like if Hewlett Packard were to stand up and say, we're making crummy printers because our employees are crummy. Um, how do we help shift that larger national dialogue? Are you seeing people who are effective at, at creating a much more positive story than the blame game? Well, that's a big question, Steve. Um, you know, I was just talking with the prior Secretary uh, General, uh, General Counsel for Secretary Education, Duncan, and uh, the head of the uh, NEA. And we were in a meeting that actually I had requested their presence to, and it was a small um, group of people. Um, and I think that uh, there was there was concurrence in the room, and I've heard this elsewhere that there are some uh, players like the Gates Foundation that are calling the shots to a great extent. And so, if there's a counter narrative, which of course is what I, I guess I'm 
providing, and I think, frankly, so are so many educators who really know what's going on from the ground up, then we need some way to uh, get our, our stories out, out there and our voices out there. And so you're, you're doing a great service this evening, and, um, you know, uh, there are other means by which to, to engage the community um, that we're starting to do, for example, and others listening to this can do as well. We're, we're doing a series of conferences that will uh, include within it a town hall, and the town hall will bring the larger community in around a question that that community wants to address. And so it's an on-the-ground, grassroots kind of way of communicating, but um, ultimately at the end of that, many of those leaders might come out with a new understanding which can then translate into uh, conversations with legislators, for example, or the media. Could you imagine a way in which we could use this technology to do a kind of a worldwide event that allowed people to go through uh, that process uh, that you describe in the book of kind of um, uh, the community building process? Could you, could you do that on a large scale with having people meet locally and coming through this kind of a medium? So is that an offer, Steve? Absolutely. Well, let's let's uh, let's talk about that then. Well, I'm glad that that sounds like and you could imagine it because I can, and I think it would be really fun to think about. Um, have you ever used Future Search or Open Space Technology or any of these other um, sort of non-educational forms of community building? And what's your take on them? You just named two that I love and that I used in our conferences for a while. You know, um, boy, it's kind of refreshing to have this conversation because, uh, as many of us know, the educational focus has narrowed to the to the lowest common denominators of basics and of basic skills testing in our country, and uh, in other countries too. You know, I, I can't bear all the blame here, but I think that it's um, it's been a, a, a narrowing of education. So. Yes, that's exactly what we did. In fact, the first conference that we put on under the Hope Foundation banner was called Rediscovering the Joy in Learning. And boy, who would ever want to attend anything that's joyous, right? But at the same time, if it's not, then what kind of child do you think is going to sit there for an entire day? So uh, we were all about that, all about the open space, all about the future search. I, I concocted the most... Um, bizarre things for people to think we would actually do, and we did it, and it worked extraordinarily well. I'm really glad to hear that. One of the parallels, and again, if you have a question for Alan, please put it in the chat. I, I'm just moving forward because I haven't seen another question. If I've missed it, I, I hope you'll draw my attention to it. I noticed some real parallels in your material to the kind of work that has taken place for me in building online communities. My Classroom 2.0 community, this Future of Education community, um, that, that there are principles sort of embedded in Web 2.0 of coming together to build something rather than building from the top down. And it's a story I end up telling quite a bit as people ask me why their uh, social networking uh, projects have not succeeded. Um, do you see something inherent in Web 2.0 technologies that provides sort of a, a ray of light in this kind of activity? I'm not qualified to respond to that. I think it, it goes under the heading of um, 
could we use this technology to uh, work, do a do a process together in different parts of the world? Um, so I think I think for for me anyway, in my experience, I need I need to uh, know more in order to address that. So for those of you who have listened to the show and, and, and know, I felt there was a real connection between the material in this book and uh, the processes that we're using to build vibrant sort of teacher-led, teacher-conversation communities that I feel are sort of dramatically providing an opportunity for changing narratives and, uh, and working together. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll look forward to, to connecting with Alan more on that. Um, this is going to be the final question. Patrick asks, is there data to indicate positive feedback to parents has positive education benefits? There's a lot of data that indicates that um, uh, parental engagement of a certain type will have positive uh, impact on student achievement. And uh, while there are various types of parental engagement that one could uh, aspire to, the one that seems to have the greatest benefit is when parents become partners in facilitating the work that needs to go on um, at home uh, to support the work that's gone on in the school. So Alan, as a courtesy to our guests, we always end on time. So I'm clapping for you now. I'm hovering over the smiley face and clicking on the applause button. Uh, the answer is in the room is my new uh, must read recommendation. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and talking about it. I'm so grateful for the chance to, to visit with you about it and uh, really delightful to get to know you a little. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks to Alan. Thanks to you who have attended. Uh, next week, Khalid Smith talks about Startup Week in EDU, and Jane Hart will be talking to us about social learning. Uh, hopefully, we'll bring a little bit more of Albert Bandura into that conversation. Um, this has really been a treat. And again, this, for me, is a must read. Uh, I really loved it, and it brought together all the threads of the things that we've been talking about um, in the recent past. Uh, we appreciate your being here. And take care, everybody. Have a good day or a good night. Bye now.